Uh, if you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11, Romans 11 is where we're going to jump in today. And we've been in this study on Romans. If you need message notes, uh, the ushers have those for you. And just raise your hand and they'll get to you when they see you. They also have pens if you need that. I think it's a big deal to write stuff down while I'm speaking. Because remember that the goal is just not my words being spoken, but God's words being spoken into your life. That's what the hope is. So let's pray and, and we'll jump into it. Father, we thank you so much for your word and and. We believe that the entrance of your word brings light. And so let your light come in and shine in every dark corner. Bring us a revelation of who you are and who you have called us to be as your people. We thank you for this. Give us grace to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I was in fifth grade and... There was this kid in our fifth grade class. His name was Billy Darden. Billy Darden was a stud. At least it seemed that every fifth grade girl thought so. He cursed like a sailor. He was in fifth grade. He had kind of cool floppy hair. And, uh, and, and, and he was like Mr. Cool. Every kid wanted to be him and every girl liked him. <laughs> I was a skinny, scrawny pastor's kid, and I, 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 I kind of watched this go, go along, and there was something about Billy Darden that was interesting. Every recess, somehow, he was in charge. He was in charge of what was happening in recess. He was in charge of the teams. He picked the guy, the other guy, who would pick the teams for what happened in recess. So as a skinny, scrawny, little pastor's kid, I would line up with the rest of the scrums. <laughs> and the suffering would begin. And Billy Darden would pick and they'd choose and everyone would hope and pray that they would not be the last to be picked. And somehow, even though... Even though I was who I was, it came down to it, me and the last person, and very often, I was the second to last pick, and it was awesome. <sighs> Have you ever felt like you've been passed over? <laughs> you ever felt like uh, you weren't chosen? Like somehow, you didn't get chosen by somebody or someone? This is the idea of chapter 11. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about with the Jewish people. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the bumper sticker that says, be patient, God's not finished with me yet. Right? I, I, I think we need a new response bumper sticker to that one. And it would say this, it would say, I'm trying to be patient with you, but God is taking forever. <laughs> I think the reality is we, we're all in a process when it comes to following Jesus. And sometimes it seems like the process takes a long time. One chapel's vision is we help people move, come on, say it with me, from where they are to where God wants them to be. That means if, if you've been a believer, a follower of Jesus for a long time, there's still more. You can still get closer to Jesus closer to God. You can, there's more to discover. If you're still investigating the claims of Jesus and you're still trying to figure it out, we just want you to take one step towards him. That's, that's what we're doing as a church. And we, we fully understand there's a process here. We've even outlined it with four steps. We think there's four steps that every Christian, every follower of Jesus goes through. And the first is they experience God. There's, a, there's an encounter with God and they experience him and they, they start to know him. And the second step is they, they begin to find freedom because sadly when you come to Jesus and experience him, you bring a lot of baggage with you. <laughs> Somehow you don't get to leave all your baggage. You just kind of, you know, that's, a, that's a bit of a process. So the second step is finding freedom. Third step is discovering your purpose. Discovering who you were made to be. And the fourth is making a difference. This is really an these are important steps for every 
person who follows Jesus. And I find that they're cyclical. Like I'll go through those steps more than once. Some of you are in the process of discovering your relationship with Jesus today. So others of you are, are new in, in, in this journey and, and you're moving towards God quickly. Some of you uh, were part of the 38 people who were water baptized last Sunday after Easter at one chapel. And you're, 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 you're experiencing an incredible moment in your life with God. Some of you are, however, are moving towards Jesus a little bit more slowly. Some of you have actually slowed down, so much so that it seems like you've stopped moving forward. You stopped moving forward in your life with Jesus because you don't feel close to him somehow. You feel a little lost. You don't, you, you don't see God changing your habits or your attitudes somehow, and, and that's caused you to be discouraged. Somehow you've stopped maybe even pursuing God because You've been hurt, disappointed by someone, discouraged. Some of you, you've stopped being optimistic or hopeful about the future and about change in your life. And you stalled out in a way. And some of you have even kind of jumped ship on God. When that happens, we're all tempted to think that God has given up on us. That we wonder, is God still here? Is he still with me? Is he, is he still for me? We all go through moments like this. I, I had just such a moment last year leading up to my sabbatical. For those of you who don't know, a sabbatical is just a, a time, a season, several weeks where I just step back from day-to-day uh, -day life and ministry in the church to gain perspective. And I remember as I, was, as, as I was leading up to that, I just knew that God wanted me to do this, that it was a step of faith somehow because I'd gotten caught in a loop of negativity. I had a myopic view, a, a tunnel vision of every problem. All I could see were the, the problems and not the, the wonders of God. I, I kind of lost my wonder Seven years into one chapel, you know, we'd planted, and seven years later, I, I found myself thinking, is, 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 is this it? Is, are we there? <laughs> are we there yet? Is this all there is? And I found my heart kind of burdened. I, 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 I knew I wasn't burned out. I remember standing up in front of you and, and giving the statistics on pastors, you know, and, and they're not good. And I said, I don't, I'm not going to be one of those statistics, and that's why I'm, I'm going to take this sabbatical. So I wasn't burned out, but I was redlining, and I could feel it. Every one of us go through moments like this. I knew I needed God to do something in my soul to lead one chapel into the next seven years. And the truth is, a lot of times, for each of us, there are these moments when we wonder, has God given up on us? It's like a house that you fix up. It's like you, 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 you hate your house. You've ever, you've ever experienced this? You, you hate the house you're living in, so you're like, we're getting rid of this house. So you fix it up. You do all this stuff to it, <laughs> and you get ready to sell it. But then you're like, oh, I like this house. <laughs> There are awesome memories in this house. This is an amazing place. Why am I leaving? But then you have to leave because you spent all that money. <laughs> it's like you're wondering, did I make a mistake? Or it's like some of you ladies, you were kind of dating that frumpy guy. Super nice guy, but eh, eh. you break up with him. And then like six months later, you see him again, but... He's all buff and everything. <laughs> like he's been to the gym and he's been working out. And you're like, oh, <laughs> did I make a mistake? Did I, did I miss it? 
I think we feel this way sometimes about God. What, when all this kind of thing happens, we, what do you do? How can you be sure God's not finished with you? I have a friend, his name is Britt Hancock. He's the leader of a mission organization that we partner with called Mountain Gateway. And, and he says this, he has a saying, he says, as long as you got breath in your lungs, God's not done with you. Which I think is a great saying. Only he's from Alabama, so, and he's super redneck, so he's like, as long as you got breath in your lungs, God ain't done with you yet. That was pretty good, wasn't it? So here's the thing. We're in, this, in the middle of this series in Romans, and we've, we, you, we, we went through the first section of Romans, and we called it Life in the Balance, and it was a lot of tension, a lot about sin, a lot about the struggle of God's provision for us, but, but us resisting or rejecting. It was a lot about God's justice perfectly measured and his mercy perfectly dispensed. And then we got to chapter 8, and we've, we've moved into a new series called Life in the Spirit, and it is the way of life, the way of God's kingdom, a life in the Spirit, and how we should think about life with Him. And Paul is stopping here at this kind of parenthetical paragraph in this letter that he's written to these Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. And he's stopping here in chapter 9, 10, and 11, and he's discussing the history of Israel and how has, and the question really is, is the majority of Jewish people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so the question is, is he, is he done with them? Is it over for them? And now all these Gentiles are coming to faith. So you have this really interesting a dichotomy of this group of people who rejected Jesus and then these people who were never really welcomed in suddenly responding to God in faith. And it seems like Israel's been left behind, replaced, forgotten, like God gave up on them and he chose somebody else to do what he wanted to do. And not only are they left behind, but they're actually, Paul describes it as they're becoming jealous of God's work with these Gentiles. And as Paul wrestles with all of this, he discovers some steps in this process for us when we're tempted to think that God has given up on us and we feel left behind or we even become jealous of everyone else that God seems to be blessing them and engaging them. And why, is it, why isn't that happening for us? So if you look at Romans 11, Verse 1 and 2, it says this, I ask then, did God reject his people, Paul says. Look at the answer. By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. What do I do when I feel like God has given up on me? Number one, stop and look. Stop and look around. Stop and get perspective. Paul is asking the question, has God rejected the nation of Israel? We were foolish. We, we rejected him. We didn't obey. So is he done with us? And his response is a quick, wholehearted, no way, not by a long shot. <laughs> not by a long shot. How, do, how does he know? How does Paul know? His proof is the fact that he himself is Jewish. Romans 11.1, 1, look at what it says. It says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people. The fact that Paul, the Israelite, is also Paul, the follower of Jesus, leads him to conclude in verse 2 that God has not rejected his people. And this phrase that Paul uses comes right out of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Chapter 12, verse 22, the prophet Samuel is giving his farewell speech. Great prophet of God. He's giving his farewell speech before he dies. And he recounts, it's an incredible moment, he recounts all the sins of Israel in graphic detail. What a nice goodbye. One after another, but he then concludes that despite Israel's failure, God will not reject Israel. 1 Samuel 12, 22 says, for the sake of his own Great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Listen to me, church. The reason why God remains faithful is because of who God is. 
as we've already spoken about in weeks past. The story is about him. Jesus is the central character, not you, not me. He has a purpose. He has a big idea of what he's doing. And we don't always see it, but he's the faithful covenant God. Covenant God. I want you to say those words. A covenant God. He's made a covenant with people. He's a covenant God first. And now for both Jews and Gentiles or non-Jews, everybody else who's not a descendant of Abraham. But he's been arguing quite strongly through this letter for the, 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 the fact that we are all children of Abraham by faith. And so he will always be faithful to his promises. Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Paul knows this. So his point is that in spite of Israel's failure to believe in Jesus, God will remain faithful to his promises to Israel. And then Paul says in verse 2, look at it. He says, whom God foreknew. Whom foreknew. That's a fancy theological word. It means he knew before. Here's what it means. Israel, Israel's failure did not take God by surprise. <laughs> he, was, he didn't say, oh, no, didn't see that coming. What are we going to do now? He didn't call a board meeting of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit trying to figure out what are we going to do. Nor does he do that with you. God knew Israel's failure before it happened, and he knows yours too. He knew yours. So what you've done and what's happening to you right now is not a surprise to him. It's not a surprise to him. And even though it may be a hidden failure in your life, even though it may be a secret to others, and you've got this thing happening, and you're just, you're just in this season of maybe even apathy, it's like, where is God? And often this happens because of disappointments. And I, I've had my share of disappointments. I, I recorded some of these disappointments in a book that I wrote a few years ago called Messy Church. This is what it is. And, and I thought it would be interesting to read a section of it in one of the most disappointing moments of my life, a, a, a great wounding in my own soul. And so I'm going to read this. It's, um, it happened while I was at a church before I came and planted one chapel. I'm going to read a little portion of it to you. This chapter is called Waking Up. Babe, I think this is it, Amy said. Amy is my wife. I didn't open my eyes. I was too exhausted. I'd been asleep for barely two and a half hours. The stench of yesterday was still on my breath. Did it really happen? Did I really just walk through that? And, and what now? What is supposed to happen now? These questions were clattering around in my brain when I somehow finally drifted to sleep. Yesterday was a day that I never thought would happen, a day that seemed surreal and grainy like an awful nightmare. Amy poked me on the shoulder and said, babe, I think this is really it. I didn't even open my eyes. No, it isn't. Yes, this is it. Get up and get dressed. We've got to go, she said firmly. I opened my eyes and looked at the red numbers glowing from my bedside clock radio, 2.06 a.m., Begrudgingly, I rolled out of my cozy bed and began to get ready to go to the hospital. I should have known better than to doubt my bride of 15 years. She had already done this four times, and it was clear by now that she knew what labor pain felt like. She was on a mission. Baby number five was not going to deliver without an epidural. We arrived at the hospital without too much drama and got checked in and then nurses hooked Amy up to all the monitors and sensors that accommodate a 21st century birthing center. It was 4.30 in the morning, and the soft glow of the birthing room with casual blonde wood furniture became our refuge for the next 48 hours. I curled up on the makeshift bed window bench and pulled a hospital throw blanket up close to my face. 
We had just begun, and already I felt emotionally spent. My mind raced. The heaviness in the pit of my stomach was unbearable. Our family was about to change. We would welcome a brand new baby boy into this world in just a few short hours, and at the moment it seemed like a world of anguish, disappointment, and pain. It was Friday, November 3rd, 2006. Thursday had come like a whirlwind that tore apart our church family with an emotional severity that I'd never experienced. A tornado of allegations, rumors, and unbelievable accusations had consumed our thoughts and emotions all day at New Life Church. I had known since 9.30 that morning that some of the allegations were true, and we were just trying to get our arms around what to do next. I called a staff meeting and said some words that sounded hollow as I tried to bring comfort and strength to a room full of people in need of assurance. We have a process to deal with these kinds of allegations set forth in our bylaws, and the overseers are flying in now to engage. I was barely present. It was surreal. I felt the out-of-body experience happening to me as I sat in front of our staff on that wooden stool inside the little youth building we called the tent. They looked fearful with empty looks in their eyes as they wondered why I wasn't saying, this is all nothing to worry about. Everybody go back to work. Later, Thursday evening, I attended a trustee meeting where six wise older men heard the unthinkable. I walked across the parking lot to see the next to the next meeting where our elders had gathered with our church overseers. The cold November wind felt like relief on my warm cheeks. The room was tense when I arrived and I felt the shock and disbelief transition to anger and frustration. Tear-stained faces and others with clenched jaws stared at one another as we began to accept the struggle our church family was about to endure. The unimaginable was happening. Our pastor had violated his marriage vows and betrayed his congregation. Our family was falling apart. I gave the first public interview to a local Denver news station while walking out of the World Prayer Center at 11.15 p.m. It ran on national cable news stations all day long on Friday, but I never saw it. I was at the hospital. The conflicting emotions in my heart seemed to physically affect my whole body. If the eyes are the window to the soul, then those nurses and doctors saw a tempest inside of me. I felt overjoyed one moment and agonized the next. I was thrilled by the prospect of our newest arrival and yet full of turmoil and fear. My wife was amazing. Since this was our fifth and final child, the doctor asked if I wanted to help deliver. It was a sight of childbirth that I had never before witnessed. Usually I was there at my, as my wife's coach, helping her breathe with my futile attempts to push along with her, saying encouraging things from time to time and trying to perceive when to shut up. It was hard work, not as hard as the work she was doing, but difficult nonetheless. <laughs> there was danger involved as well, fingernail marks on my flesh, screams in my ear at close range, even a headlock during an extended push. <laughs> I was happy to sit where the doctor usually sits to witness this miracle and receive this new little life into my hands. And after several pushes, the baby crowned and the doctor started to say things like, wait, 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 don't push too hard yet. And this boy may be a little bigger than we thought. Finally, this wrinkly mass of joyous flesh and bone, blood and water entered our world. I caught him with my own two hands and held him in my arms. Dad and baby both crying in this moment of miracle and mess, wonder and wailing. Amy leaned back, feeling the relief that follows God's great birthing process. I cut the umbilical cord and we laid my son on the scale. I can still remember the surprised oohs and ahs in the room as the number came up on that little digital screen, 10.05 10 pounds. One family was growing, birthing, and celebrating. The other family was wounded, disillusioned, and bewildered. One family was staring into the future with bright-eyed wonder and anticipation. The other family wrestled with the past and felt fearful of what the future would hold. I was part of both families. Even as I read it, I'm transported. I can feel the emotions of the moment. Our pastor was a nationally known speaker and author, and so it became this huge thing. CNN, MSNBC, all the other networks were camped out in our, our front parking lot. And I remember thinking to myself, how could God let this happen? 
It was the perfect storm, of course, because he was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. So it was, it was religion, politics, and sex. Questions roll around in your mind at moments like this. Like, why would God allow such foolishness and failure in the midst of such life-giving ministry? How did that happen? So many relationships, salvations, um, mission work, discipleship. How, how does this happen? Did God expose this man? Or, and if he did, what kind of pain or punishment is God willing to expose us to? These are the questions that begin to rise in your mind at just such a moment. I remember feeling so guilty about not seeing the signs. I felt somehow responsible. I'm a firstborn. I feel responsible for everything. But there's like a, this, this thing in my heart like I could have done something differently to rescue the situation, to ch have changed it. And there were many, many days I didn't know what to do. I, was, I, w I became the interim senior pastor. If you ever have a chance to become an interim senior pastor, I don't recommend it. And I, I, and I remember going through this process. I didn't know what to do, so I called an early morning prayer meeting, 6 a.m. every day. Went on for three months. I spent more than one day, two days, three days. I spent weeks underneath a chair in this building we called the World Prayer Center where we prayed for the nations of the world. And during this season, we were praying for our very souls. We were praying for God's intervention. We were praying to know what to do next. The disappointment, the deception. This is where we find this first step in the process. When you think God may have given up on you, you gotta stop and look for God in the small things. I want you to write that down in your notes. You, can't, you don't just stop and look around. You stop and look for God in the small things. See, it's the big things, financial stress, job layoff, relational conflict. These kinds of big things tend to keep us from seeing the small things that God is doing. For Paul, the big thing here was the vast majority of the Jews didn't believe in Jesus. It would have been so easy for Paul to let the big thing overshadow the small thing. The small thing being that he himself believed in Jesus. He was also a Jew. If I can find him operating in the small things, Paul reasoned, I have faith that he's working in the big things too. Make no mistake, I, I found God's grace over and over again during that year of grief and tragedy. In fact, there was, it was 13 months later when a shooting occurred on our campus. We became one of those churches where a shooting occurred. Two girls lost their lives. It was an incredibly painful season, scandal and tragedy. God, where are you? Where are you? What is this? The disillusionment proceeded to unfold during months of more accusations, the unearthing of deceptions in our past, enduring the shame of a tarnished reputation in the city and in the nation. I, I remember I would go in, like I'd be dealing with this stuff all week long. News people, lawyers, all this stuff, all these things. And I remember coming to Saturday night and I'd, I'd be on track to speak the next day, or should I say off track to speak the next day. And I would pace around the auditorium. I'd just walk around. I did laps, like I do here sometimes, right around this little thing on Saturday nights. And I would just pray. I would pray in the Holy Spirit. I'd pray. I'd cry out to God by myself. I would ask him what to do. Where, where, where is he? What is he doing? Show us what to do. Show us how to pr pr process this and, and make progress. And I would just feel so empty and fearful, but I'd leave on Saturday night. I'd go home. I'd go to sleep. I'd get up the next morning. I'd stand on that stage and speak. I'd open the scriptures and speak about 
what Jesus had done and a miracle would happen. People would respond to the gospel. People, God's grace would fill the room. We experienced that over and over and over again. See, it was the small things in the midst of the big thing that gave us hope. When you're wondering if God is finished with you, look around for the small things that are happening in your life. The grace of God for these moments so often we're not content with that, are we? So often we only look for the big things. We want the big resolution, the big resolve. Finish it. Tie it up in a bow, God. We're done. We want, we want this big thing to stop. But the small things is where we find God's faithfulness. Several years ago, J.P. Morgan, the bank, forgot to pay its renewal on its domain name. Okay, so they forgot to pay the renewal on the domain name, so it was disconnected from the website and email for six weeks. It, like, was down. So think of this. A $21 billion company forgot to pay a $35, billion, a $35 bill. Look, the small things matter more than you think they do. Small things are more important than you realize. If you're wondering if God is finished with you, it's time to stop and look around for the small blessings, the small graces in your life. Number two, when you're wondering if God is finished with you, you've got to remember God's goodness. Romans 11, 2 through 6, more about the Jewish people and, and the Gentiles. Paul says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. Everybody say a remnant. There is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were grace, would no longer be grace. You could see what God is doing here. Paul is recalling this Old Testament story. This question reminds him of an ancient Jewish prophet named Elijah. And in the Old Testament, it's in the book of 1 Kings, and a Jewish king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they're the ones leading Israel at this time to turn away from God. And they were worshiping a false idol, a god named Baal. And it looked like all Israel had turned away from God, and Elijah felt all alone. So he's crying in the wilderness. In fact, it, it had come right after an incredible display of God's power through Elijah. But then he gets depressed. He runs away. He's in the wilderness. Jezebel's having all of the prophets of God killed. At one point, King Jeze Queen Jezebel even issues a bounty on Elijah's head. And Elijah runs for his life to the desert and a cave and cries out to God to let him die. You ever feel like that? God, just let me die. Verse 3 describes Elijah. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altar. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Elijah was convinced God had given up on him. But God reminds him of something so important. When Elijah feels totally alone, God says to him, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not by yourself. There were more prophets out there than just Elijah. God kept a remnant of people for himself. He always, everybody say always, he always does. There's always a remnant. There's always a, a group, a community. They're going to stay even though Paul felt like he was alone in his devotion to Jesus, he reminds himself of the remnant that existed in Elijah's day and realizes that there's also a remnant of Jewish people who trust in Jesus in his day. Romans 11.5 says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. By grace, God's favor is now working in the Jewish people to respond to him. And here's our next step in the process. When you think God is finished with you, remember that you don't see everything God is doing. You've got to remember his goodness, but remember that you don't see everything he's doing. God's work is often hidden from our eyes. Everybody say bummer. It's a bummer. 
But the reality is God is working behind the scenes in ordinary circumstances like chance encounters and what we might call coincidences to accomplish his purpose in the world and, yes, in your life. This very thing happened to Amy and I as we were going through this year of pain and disillusionment and struggle as I was the interim senior pastor. We felt like God was asking us if we'd give everything to him. I was really, I was really nervous that the church was essentially going to become a used car parking lot. When a church goes through these kinds of things, it's very difficult for it to survive. And so I thought I might have to become a realtor. No offense to realtors. I just was probably the only thing I could do because as a pastor, I was essentially unemployable. <laughs> right? There's like this thing that happens to you. We're like, oh, my goodness. Am I holding on too tight? And so I just, we decided, Amy and I said, okay, we're going to give him everything. And this wasn't the right time to put your house on the market because the church was watching us and everything that we did as their leaders. And, but we just felt like the Lord wanted us to do this, so we were obedient. We put our house on the market. And I had to have conversations. I'm not going anywhere. I just feel like I need to give everything up to God. And we decided we put our house on the market, and, and for several months it was on the market, about nine or ten months it was on the market with barely any bites, and we finally realized this isn't going anywhere, and we took it off the market. We were in the next season. During that time, a new pastor had come, Pastor Brady Boyd, and we'd become really good friends, and that was a miracle in and of itself, and I, I was, wasn't going anywhere. I was going to go through the next season with this family, my family, my church family, and so we went through this season and worked to help New Life Church get to the next season of, of its existence in life. And God put a dream in our heart to plant a church. And Pastor Brady and the elders, they all prayed with us as we started going down that path a couple years down the road. This is two years later. And, and, and we're praying about it. We're thinking about it. And the, they got behind us financially and with encouragement. And, 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 and we, we had our, our city marked out in Austin. And it was wonderful. But we knew the last thing would be to the sale of our house. And this was during the really bad down market. We were, I mean, nobody was selling houses. So here we are. We put our house on the market. The day we stick the sign in the yard, a lady calls our house. Hey, my name is so-and-so, and, -so and I, I think God has told me I'm supposed to buy your house. <laughs> my wife's like, <laughs> she's like, I have to sell, my, my house has to sell, and then I have to sell another property. And then I was like, oh, here we go. Yeah, this is one of those kooks. <laughs> right, great man of power and faith right here. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. God's doing something awesome, and I'm like, yeah, right, okay, we'll see. We'll see if it happens. Well, the next few months unfolded, and it happened exactly as she said it would. And they bought our house with cash for the asking price. Now, here's the miracle. We're like, during that process, how did you even know about our house? She, she, actually, the day she called, she said, is it, still, is it, is it for sale? Because she had walked through our house two years earlier when it was on the market with no bites. God was doing something that we didn't know anything about. While we just tried to obey him, while we just tried to do the next thing in front of us, and there's a miracle here that's waiting for you, but often it doesn't come as fast as we want it. And we can't see that God is doing something behind the scenes because it hasn't revealed itself yet. You've got to remember God's goodness and remember that you can't see it all. He doesn't check in with you on everything that's developing, sadly. Here's the psalmist, and what he says in verse 42, he says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, my, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Everybody say, these things I remember. God often works in ways we can't see at the time. And that's why it's important to remember how God has worked in the past. Number three, when you feel like God is finished with you or you can't seem to find him, trust him in everything. Trust him with everything. See, this is why we call it faith. (laughs) Faith. It is not a lack of God to question. I'm sorry. It is not a lack of faith in God to question. God is not afraid of your questions. But there is a moment where you have to say, okay, I'm just going to put my hope in you. I'm not going to put my hope in my own strength. I'm not going to put my hope in my own career. I'm not going to put my hope in my own money. I'm not going to put my hope in all the things that I can control. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. Romans 11, 7 through 10 says, What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain. But the elect did. Mean, the elect meaning the chosen ones within this Jewish family. They chose something. The others were hardened, Paul says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, he's quoting the psalmist again, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Here's what. Here's what Paul's looking at. Paul's talking about two communities here in these verses, the nation of Israel and the Gentiles, the newly forming Christian community in this place in Rome and elsewhere, the followers of Jesus. Paul is making the point that since the nation of Israel, now follow me, since the nation of Israel for the most part has rejected Jesus, God chose to work through a different community, the Gentiles. To start forming this new community of believers. But Paul also makes the point that still God hasn't rejected Israel. In spite of their actions, God hasn't rejected them, even though they may be sidelined for a while. Here's how I would say it. It's like a superstar baseball player who's struggling at the plate. His manager benches him and starts a rookie in his spot to give the rookie the playing time that he needs. The superstar is still on the team, but for now he's benched. The reason Paul gives for Israel's benching is in Romans 11.25. Look what he says. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. When he says mystery, he's talking about the mystery being revealed in Christ. He's not talking about something like, like, like this new idea. He's talking about Christ and the mystery that has come to fulfillment so that you may not be conceited. He's warning the Gentiles not to become conceited because God's working in them. He says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. (laughs) See, when the star player gets benched, that gives opportunity for the rookie to rise and develop as a player. I know it's a little crude. It's a crude illustration. But this is kind of what Paul's talking about here. Because God is using Israel's lack of faith in Jesus as their Messiah to bring in everybody else. He's actually, Paul is even arguing that God is doing it intentionally to level the playing field. So that they, so the Jewish people realize they've got to have the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Christ, the mercy of God through Jesus. He's saying they're not left out, but they've got to respond to Jesus. And he's leveling the playing field. They thought they were special and they had the corner on the market with God. But God is welcoming everybody else in and they've got to come in with them. Israel would see it happening and, and actually would become jealous their jealousy would start to to turn them they would turn and trust in jesus here we, we find our our step next step in the process when you think that god has given up on you trust god to use every aspect of your life in a positive way think of this He's using even the rejection of the Jewish people to bring people into his kingdom. Trust God to use every aspect of your life in a positive way. And this includes our failures. This includes our failures. Here's the question for you today. Can you trust God to use every aspect of your life 
the very things we wish we didn't have in our lives? Can you trust God even with your own failures and foolishness and mistakes? With the mistakes and violations of others? Don't get me wrong. We're responsible for our own failures. When we rebel against God, and we, we, we often receive the consequences that impact the rest of our lives. But I also believe God is able to use our failures in a positive way. This is what Romans 8.28 is all about, which we studied a few weeks ago. Check it out. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. Every mistake, every failure, or foolishness, all suffering, whatever you're going through, when placed in God's hands, will be useful, used by him for your benefit and for his glory. Everything can be used. Now, if you hold on to it, if you choke it to death, if you turn away, if you rebel, that takes it. Now, he, now in, his, in his sovereignty... Here's what I believe. I believe God has an infinite number of responses to every single decision that every human on the planet makes. Seven billion people making decisions. God has an infinite number of responses to every one of them. That's what makes him God. That's how he can mold and shape the affairs of history and humanity. And he can work in your life even with the stuff that's terrible. When you feel like he's, he's gone, he's not, he's, he's, you've kind of lost touch with him. Here's what God is. God's like a great chef that makes an awesome stew. He wastes nothing. He saves it all and then puts it all together and makes something for your provision, for my provision. Listen, the end of the story, New Life Church is an incredible, thriving congregation today. It's an incredible miracle. And because I went through that scandal and that, that tragedy, you know what happened to me? I didn't actually end up discouraged about the church. I could have become cynical, skeptical, critical. But instead, I became convinced that no matter what happens to God's people, I believe the words of Jesus when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like the church, Jesus is in charge of it. He, he has power and authority that we don't have to worry about it. I know the church is full of hypocrites. Welcome. <laughs> this is this God's working in us in our process and he's the builder of the church and I trust him to lead it. I, be, I, I, I came out of that thing believing that the church is more resilient than ever. It's made it through the dark ages. It's made it through every season of tyranny and discouragement and violation and persecution. And it made, I saw it happen at New Life Church as we walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And it is what gave me the courage to take the leap and plant one chapel. Because <laughs> I believed. I believed that God was in it. And I still believe today, since my, my sabbatical, it's like I have a renewed hunger and thirst for God's grace and goodness. I have a, a, a renewed faith and expectation that God is going to build a family of neighborhood churches. That we are going to keep planting all across the region of Austin. And I want you to go with me. I don't want you to get discouraged. I don't want you to get stuck in apathy. I don't want you to get hurt or wounded by someone, even by me, and, and, then, and then not have a way in which you can lean in to God. I want, I want us all as a people of God to realize that when we feel like we can't find him, when we've lost the wonder, when we've kind of leaned back from him, we need to stop and we need to look around. Look at the small things that he's doing. We need to remember his goodness and we need then to trust him to use every aspect, every, every suffering, every difficulty in a positive way, even my own failures. Can you trust God with your life today? 
If God can do it for the nation of Israel, he can do it for your life. If he can do it for the Gentiles, he can do it with you. If he can do it with me, he can do it for you. God is not finished with me yet. Write it down. Write it down. God is not finished with me yet. Even if you feel finished with him. So I will be patient. I will be patient. 1 Corinthians 1.9 from the Message Bible says, God will never give up on you. Never forget that. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want to ask you, today I feel compelled to ask you to evaluate the current temperature of your spiritual life. Where are you? I especially want to talk to those of you who have kind of checked out with God. If apathy has taken over in your life, I want you to repent of it today. God is jealous for you in the most perfect way. He longs for your affection and your life and your love because he wants to share his love with you. It's not a need, it's a desire in order to in order to give you the life that he's always wanted for you. He's simply waiting for you. You may not be experiencing disappointment, but you may be experiencing sort of a disillusionment with your spiritual life and health, and so you're leaning away from him. Maybe you're here and you just feel like God's not, he's simply not interested in you anymore somehow. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's waiting for you to respond to him today, to lean towards him. He's not rejected you. In fact, he's leaning towards you. And that's why we come to this table today, because Jesus set this table and leaned into his disciples. The bread representing the body, the broken body of Jesus for our healing, the cup representing the blood for the forgiveness of our sins. This is God leaning towards you saying, come to me. I have provision. I have healing. I have forgiveness. Don't hold me at arm's length. Come to this table. He's leaning across to you at this table, and he wants you to come and sit and lean towards him. Father, we just come to you right now, and we, we want you to speak to us. Would you point out those this place in our heart, this way of thinking that you want to heal and, and you want to strengthen us today. Would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us? Would you help us to see differently today? Would you do your work here as we come to this table with you? In Jesus' name, amen.